Before we get to our show, here is a podcast we think you're going to love. Lisa Lucas from Best Forevers, a podcast for kindred spirits. I'd like to start a movement where we spend more time loving on our friends because although friends are important to us, they're often in the shadow of other relationships. So if you want to love on your friendships a little bit more, embrace friendship a little bit more, or just appreciate your friendships a little bit more, then this podcast is for you. We'll explore all the different ways friendships take place, share the amazing stories of friendship, and discuss best practices for the difficulties that friends may experience. It's time to embrace friendships because without our friends, who would we be? So check out Best Forevers on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the other podcasting listening venues. And be sure to follow Best Forevers Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hello and well, welcome to Perhaps It's You. We're an unofficial, so unofficial, super duper unofficial, Unsolved Mysteries Rewatch podcast. I'm Les. And I'm Samantha. We're in the great state of Minnesota, mm-hmm. in the witch district of Minneapolis. Shout out, witches. Hello, witches. Could you please cast a spell to stop the snow? And the rain. Please. We, we just need some sunshine. But also not too much sunshine because then all the snow is going to melt at the same time and it's going to flood. It's, it's gonna we're in a very precarious spot in Minnesota. Last week was awful. A really, really long week. We apologize for our last episode coming out late, but that is- look, we just had one catastrophe after another between both of us. It's really been brutal. It was enough to. I think I believe in astrology now. Okay. Because I was like, how can so much bad things happen in a 24-hour period? Mercury in retrograde? Yeah. Okay, well, maybe that explains it. Because I was like, this bad things can't keep happening. It has to get better. And then another bad thing would happen. And I'd be like, oh, okay. This is honestly eerie. It really was one of those weeks. It was brutal and long. One thing after another. Fortunately, it's Sunday now. Hopefully, that's behind us. And we can start a new... a fresh... We have some cinnamon rolls, some strawberries for our very glamorous breakfast. Things are looking up. Yeah. Truly, to be honest. I feel like once that 24 hours passed, things did. Though I think Mercury is still retrograde, but whatever. I mean, okay. It was super in retrograde last week. (laughs) There was was another planet in the thing. Oh, okay. You know, a, a comet and a star yikes well i'm willing to blame it on that (laughs) i just made all that up obviously i have no idea what i'm talking about astrology seems very complicated and a lot of math i don't know oh pass for me on that one what uh what sun sign are you samantha no idea is that like my regular sign yeah okay i'm aquarius (laughs) (laughs) i'm not okay i want to hear from people i've never heard it called a sun sign i know obviously less than nothing about astrology i know i'm an aquarius that is literally it i didn't even know it was a sun sign is there different kinds of signs yes there's there's it's if you get your whole chart it's very complicated okay i did know that you could have a chart and that can be complicated (laughs) 
I want to. It has to do with when you're born, right? The time of day, yes, and your the- location, and your you need your your date of birth, your location, and your exact birth time. Okay, I'm revealing myself to know obviously very little about this. I would love to hear from people who do know about astrology. If you're like, oh, of course, Samantha's an Aquarius, total Aquarius. Uh, yeah, what does that say about me? Yeah, I I think it is obvious. I'm an Aries, which is why. Well, of course, I'm. Yeah, obviously, I knew that. Yeah. Which is why my reaction to things sometimes when I'm mad at people on the internet is, I'm going to go to their house and fight them. <laughs> Samantha knows. I believe friend of the pod, Arden, is also an Aquarius. Yeah. We were just talking about this not that long ago. But, yeah, I don't know what it says about me. Okay. I don't really either. But I would like to hear from people if they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Right in. Yeah. That's perhaps it's you podcast at gmail.com. Do you have any other updates? Ah, I have an update I want to mention right off the top because I don't think everyone listens to the very end, and that is for our super duper mystery solvers. If you are a super duper mystery solver, that means you give us ten dollars or more a month. First of all, why do you do that? That's a poor financial decision. Second of all, thank you. We love it though. Yeah. Yeah. Third of all, your super duper mystery solver gifts, your Patreon reward is your first one is going to be going out. At the beginning of April, if you were wondering where that was. I think we originally said it was going to be March, but now it's going to be the beginning of April because that's the start of the next quarter. Right. It has to be, you have to be signed up at that tier for three, your part payment has to process for three months. So I was thinking of it as like three months into the year, but with like Patreon processing, your payment will process at the beginning of April and then we'll send out your thing. Yes. And you have to be signed up for three months to get the thing. That's just fair. And I don't know that we made that super clear when we first started the new tiers. So at present, everyone who is a super duper mystery solver is going to get a thing that I am making. The reason I wanted to mention it was one, to let you know that they're coming in April. So be prepared for that. And also to let everyone else know if you're not a super duper mystery solver, but you think the gift is awesome or you would like a gift, if you sign up now, you're not going to get it because I'm yeah. hand making them and I simply don't have enough time to make more. So, well, and you've got to pay for three months. And yeah. by that point, we'll be giving out something else. But so. now is the time to sign up if you think that in three months from now, you would like to have <laughs> a special gift. Um, we've got some really fun things planned. So. It's definitely worth your money, I think. Um, it's patreon.com slash perhaps it's you. I just wanted to give a little announcement for those of you who may be wondering where your super duper mystery solver Patreon reward is. They're coming at the beginning of April. Yeah. And they're pretty awesome if I do say so myself. I feel like this is a podcast that appreciates value. So you're going to get your money's worth. We're not a podcast that's like, oh, for $10, we'll give you a shout out. Because we all know that's fucking bullshit, right? Absolutely. Like, that's not a good use of $10. No, I don't know why. Who would pay for that? I don't know. That's wild. I mean, I guess it's just a donation and then you get a little thanks, but... Everyone gets a thanks. If you give us a quarter, you get a thanks. Yeah. I don't don't get anything else if you give a quarter, but... Well, Patreon lets you give a quarter (laughs) and they probably take a... They, I think they take 10% of that quarter, but we'll still thank you because you did not have to do that. No, of course not. And then obviously everyone else gets a bonus episode every month, uh, a postcard when you sign up. Uh, you get a coloring sheet if you give us more than $5. People seem to really be enjoying that. Overall, I think our Patreon is worthwhile. Yeah. People are I enjoying so. it. Periodically, we do watch parties. Maybe we'll do one coming up. Yeah. 
the last one was kind of chaos. It was so. a little chaotic, mainly because I never, I don't think I ever mentioned this. So Patreon was down for one. It was, yes. So it was, we couldn't distribute the link to the watch party room that way. And then the room was public at one point. So like just random bozos were wandering in saying <sighs> weird stuff. We used the website a website called Rabbit, which is where you can invite your friends. It used to be you would just send out the link to your friends. That was the only way to do it. And you would come in and then whoever's hosting the online room can stream something. So if you have a Hulu account, you can stream your Hulu account and everyone in the room gets to watch it. And there's comment features. It's really fun. But as the website's gotten more popular, they've added things. And one of these things they have now is open rooms where... Which we did not know. You could just... I mean, I knew that they had that, but... In the past, you could choose, and I think you still can. I just need to figure out how to do it between a private room and an open room. And so it was no problem. I just picked a private room, and then you can have like up to 20 people, and it worked out great. They redid their website, and I did not realize it until the moment I was going to do host our last watch party, and I could not, for the life of me, figure out how to make my private room. Actually, I couldn't figure out how to even make a room at first. It was just bizarre the way they have their website laid out now so yeah we ended up with an open room which was fine until we put it on youtube we decided to watch i think hotel hell on youtube Mm -hmm. and then i don't know if for some reason people are more interested in watching youtube videos because the weirdos just started arriving and they had bikini pics for us to look at. Yes. They had yeah, they were demanding terrible pics. views of the world. They were racist. It was wild. Uh, they're probably just trolls, really. But yeah, so I apologize. Although we did end up distributing our link to everyone on our Facebook group. So some people who I think are not patrons got to enjoy the watch party. Hopefully you had fun with us and it might prompt you to, you know, find four quarters in your mom's purse so that you can participate <laughs> in watch parties in the future because they really are fun we have a good time doing it we try our best man <laughs> is our best always good enough no but we're we, here we do what we can this is a weird hobby that we just won't stop doing <laughs> we're, we're very committed now the so. patreon people keep it going so thank you to them but you know. But you really do keep it going. It's such a luxury to be able to be like, you know, we need to pay for something for the podcast. Printer ink, you know, to print our notes. Well, we can just use Patreon funds. It's right. so nice and we appreciate it more than you know. So, yeah. Yeah. That's our keep Patreon that pod- podcast rolling in. <laughs> we we can- need it. We need it all. We sure do. All right. So, I think Cancel that's your it. thing, your Patreon disorder and scale and whatever money you're putting towards that, put to us. Yeah. It'll keep your budget the same. This is a great idea. Okay. Eat that strawberry. What episode are we on? We're on season three, episode 19. 19, If you're following along at home on Amazon Prime. I liked this episode. Okay. All right. I thought it was okay. It wasn't my favorite, but I actually enjoyed my first segment. Yeah. I didn't think that I would. So I'm... This is an... It's an interesting one. All right. So this first one, I'm not sure why it's a mysterious legends. Because it's about a serial killer, but... Okay. I think the legend is supposed to be Elliot Ness. I guess, but usually Mysterious Legends are like Bigfoot. 
Elliot Ness was a real person. They put um, Butch Cassidy as a mysterious legend also. It's bizarre. Anyway. But I also think this is like a little wink because Robert Stack played Elliot yes. Ness. So I think it's more like... A legend. He played a legend. Yeah. That could be it. Hey, hey. All right. We open the segment in Chicago in 1929. Robert Stack says that prohibition was the law of the land and that Chicago was gripped by bootlegging and rampant police corruption. <laughs> Still is. This was when, an, a, <laughs> according to Robert Stack, a, quote, aggressive 26-year-old treasury agent named Elliot Ness was hired to, quote, smash the gangland rackets that gripped the city. So... Elliot Ness was an American prohibition agent famous for his efforts to bring down Al Capone and enforce prohibition in Chicago, Illinois. And he was the leader of a famous team of law enforcement agents from Chicago nicknamed the Untouchables. Also notable was that a certain Robert Stack portrayed him in the television crime drama The Untouchables, which first aired in October 1959. Wink, wink. Yes, Robert it all Stack comes full circle. was very excited to talk about this mystery, you could tell. Because he comes out, he's either in a church or a very ornate courtroom. I didn't understand yeah. this place. This, this venue because it had church pews but also there was like these large chairs at the front i don't know it was the weirdest church i've ever seen but anyway robert stack comes out to tell us that when he played ness on tv he learned that there was a secret private side to his public persona robert stack says wait what he wasn't just the person that went to work <laughs> I, I find that hard to believe quote those who know him agree that his iron-willed quiet countenance cloaked a fearless determination to wipe out corruption that is a mouthful of a sentence was congrats a bit... getting through that wow <laughs> it was a little hard to say but he is also a man who is not above bending the law himself to bring a criminal to justice that he was, was the, our... he was the batman of his day is that what i'm hearing kind of yeah okay all right so this segment is not about ness taking down al capone after the untouchables ness encountered the one case he could not crack a case that robert stack says would haunt him for the rest of his life that actually seemed kind of true yeah i think it was so, in September 1934, Elliot Ness became the public safety director for Cleveland, Ohio. It was a position that was comparable to a modern-day police commissioner. At the time, Cleveland was a known haven for gangsters and street criminals. During his first year, Robert Stack says that arrests went up and crime went down. There you go. Yeah. We, I mean, I we guess know that's, that works. That's, yeah, I guess that's good <laughs> if that's your goal. Sure. All right. However, there was evil afoot in Cleveland that would soon overshadow Ness's primary <gasps> mandate. All right. Almost a year exactly to when Ness first arrived in Cleveland, the mutilated bodies of two men were found in Kingsbury Run, an impoverished area of Cleveland that Robert Stack does not describe kindly. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, the case was. <laughs> This is a bizarre quote. Dismissed as a vicious but routine double homicide. Okay. <laughs> you know. I don't know what was routine about two mutilated bodies, but all right. That's so American. Yeah, it was we, a we, vicious but routine double homicide. We what? found two mutilated corpses and we just assumed just a, a normal another, Tuesday. Yeah, just another Tuesday here in Cleveland. <laughs> so, what you gonna do? By 1936, three more bodies had been found, and then the discovery of a sixth victim that fall, quote, threw Cleveland into an uproar. Because <laughs> six is the lucky number. Six is the, after five six, 
mutilated bodies. They were like, that's, that's not great. That's still routine. Six. Oh, we, we got I draw here. the line there. So we meet author Stephen Nickel, who has a scruffy handlebar mustache. Okay. This is definitely our MVM. I, this episode was light on mustaches, but his was all right. It's very big and full. Yes. It, here's my drawing of it. That's a great I drawing. wasn't quite sure what to call it. I'm very open to suggestions on this. I was calling it the youthful old man. <laughs> a little bit. It Be- was not very well groomed, I will say that. Because I feel like this guy, so he's he's balding, he's got this mustache, he's got big glasses. But he looks young. But from his voice and just like, I don't think he's really that old. No. But his like styling is old. Yeah. So he's like a a young old man. That's a good way of describing him. I don't... It's a... He's like a, a, a pre-hipster or... Sure, yeah. I'm not sure what's happening. I, it's fascinating. It, fascinating character. Yes. Steven... Also, Steven Nickel. <laughs> Is that a real name? <laughs> Sounds not real. Sounds maybe like that's a, from a cartoon. Maybe that's his pen name. Okay, so he says that the city was in a panic. It was obvious that there was a serial killer on the loose. So... We, uh, you may know the serial killer as the Cleveland Torso Murderer, although they were also known as the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Okay. So the victims of the Torso Murderer were usually the working poor who had nowhere else to live but the ramshackle shanty towns of an area in Cleveland known as the Cleveland Flats. The, this is from Wikipedia, by the way. The Torso Murderer always beheaded and often dismembered his victims occasionally. Sev- Just routine, though. Occasionally severing the victim's torso in half or removing Ugh. the limbs. Ugh. Now, this is where they get the name the Torso Murderer, which is possibly the worst. It's not catchy. Serial killer name I can think of. Though maybe that's to, like, shame him. Yeah, maybe. You know, like, we're not going to give you a cool name like the Night Stalker. Yeah. We're going to give you a kind of fumbling, not that great the name. The Torso Murderer. You seem like you're into torsos. So I apologize, this is a bit gruesome. In many cases, the cause of death was the decapitation or the dismemberment itself. Gross. Most of the male victims were castrated, and some of the victims showed evidence of chemical burns to their bodies. Wow. Many of the victims were found after a considerable period of time went by following their deaths, occasionally in excess of a year. In In an era when forensic science was largely in its infancy, these factors further complicated identification, especially because the heads were almost never found. The body count in the Kingsbury Run area would eventually reach 12, and as many as 18 other murders in Greater Cleveland were thought to be connected to the case. Wow. Only two victims were ever positively identified. Victim two was Edward Andresi, which Robert Stack calls him a small-time hood. Yeah, I just think he was a criminal of some sort. A small-time hood. Yeah. Bizarre. That's just... That's something like people, a hoodlum? Yes. Is that short for hoodlum? Yes. A hood? Yes. That's like the way people talk in a black and white movie. That's just not a phrase people use anymore. Small time hood. Oh, he's a small time hood. Yeah. Bizarre. So, and victim three was Florence Polillo, a 41-year-old sex worker. Investigators think but aren't certain that victim eight was a woman named Rose Wallace. Author Stephen Nichols says that Ness wasn't certain how to proceed with the case. It wasn't, this is, I thought this was a pretty apt um, interpretation. He says that it wasn't a matter of tracking down the brewery, finding out where the mobsters were hiding, and quote, smashing into the place. This was a different type of criminal. Yeah, it takes a different type of investigation. So the things that he was known for and were good at 
probably didn't really serve him in this case. Right, he was a prohibition officer. I think he was completely unprepared to investigate a serial killer. Yeah. You know, and especially with the tools that he had at his disposal at the time, which was not much. So another author by the name of Oscar Farley says that Fraley, Fraley, Sure. Whatever. Says that Ness drew up a profile of the killer. He believed that it may have been someone with a certain amount of medical knowledge and that it had to have been a very strong man to have carried the bodies all over, dumping them here and there. I mean, that makes sense. Sure. So Ness was at an impasse when he decided he wanted to search every dwelling in Kingsbury Run. Uh, not cool. Elliot Ness. Elliot Ness seems to have decided that... The killer was in Kingsbury Run. He didn't seem to, it didn't seem to cross his mind that the killer was targeting these people who were obviously the less dead as we know them now. People who would not likely be missed, people who are vulnerable, people that the police probably wouldn't start even looking into until six of them die. Right. They're underserved. They've been ignored by the government and yes. the larger Cleveland community. So he has decided to go into Kingsbury Run and shake everyone down. And try and find the killer. Which is the sort of prohibition tactic, right? Yeah. It's, this is just like big muscle, yep. show of force. That's not really what's called for here. Also, uh, you don't have a warrant, Elliot Ness. <laughs> seems to be the primary issue. Yes. But Ness skirted the need for warrants by pairing detectives with fire officials and ordering that they conduct widespread, quote, safety inspections. Boo. Yeah. Uh, Nichols somewhat comically describes the detectives as actually expecting to find some kind of diabolical laboratory with blood splattered walls, arms and legs scattered around, and perhaps a cache of heads in a corner. <laughs> I mean, they probably did. I think they were expecting to find that. Of course they didn't. <laughs> Nichols, uh, <laughs> could you imagine like a Dexter style, just like fucking... And even Dexter cleaned up, man. Right. <laughs> like, but I think they were really like, well, they're keeping the head somewhere. Maybe there's a pile just in of their them. house. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, next, Ness put every doctor and hospital worker in the city under surveillance, questioning and detaining hundreds of them. Obviously, this didn't work. Still, the investigation led nowhere. The killer remained at large, and the case began to consume Ness. When victim 12 was found, the body was just 200 yards from Elliot Ness's office. It seemed as though the Such killer fuck you. was becoming more daring and possibly even taunting Ness. 200 yards? Yes. Yeah. They said it was basically below his window. <laughs> of his office. I shouldn't laugh because it was brutal and disgusting, but also just the sort of ballsiness of it is right. comical. So author Oscar Farley said, Fraley, whatever, says that they were now claiming that Cleveland was one of the safest places in the country, except for this killer, who was still out there chopping up bodies and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's super safe, except for these routine decapitations <laughs> and getting your torso severed. Right. Except for that little problem. So less than 48 hours after victims 11 and 12 were found, Ness decided to take drastic measures. Him and his men descended upon Kingsbury Run's homeless population, rounding up more than 60 men, hoping that the killer would be among them. He then ordered that the shanty town be burned to the ground. This is terrible. Yeah, this is awful. And Nicholas says that this Ness... Is their home. 
yeah, it's awful. Nichols says that Ness was carrying out a, quote, untouchable style raid, really hoping that it would work. But the decision backfired. The public's opinion of him tanked. People thought that it was an act of a desperate man and that his tactics had been brutal and didn't accomplish anything. I'm surprised people were so savvy in a way. Yeah. Because I agree completely. Absolutely. It was brutal and it accomplished nothing. I just ruined those people's homes. And I can't remember. I think it was Nichols said that he thought, well, even if the killer isn't among these men, at least they're not out there to be the next victims. But where are you keeping them? Yeah. Where do they go then? They have to go back on the street and now they're unsheltered. Yeah. So the few possessions that they had are gone now. Yeah. But did that help anything? No. So at this point, the killing suddenly stopped, but the case continued to haunt Ness. He was um, all the more frustrated because he believed he knew the killer's identity, but was never able to come up with enough evidence. The man was a member of a prominent Cleveland family that Unsolved Mysteries did not want to name. Ness believed that his suspicion was confirmed because the killing stopped in 1938. At the same time, this man had himself committed to a state mental hospital. Hmm. Some years later, Ness began receiving postcards from a man in a mental institution. The cards taunted him about the murders, and it was apparently impossible to, t- to determine who sent them. Yeah, that's Not weird. sure why. Uh, How does I don't he understand. know they're from a mental institution? I, they can't, they were the return address was a mental institution, but they still couldn't say who sent. Apparently, them. they didn't track the mail that was going out. Okay, cool. Don't understand. Whatever. So that was the end of the unsolved mysteries segment. I looked up um, a little bit more information on Wikipedia because I wanted to know who the suspect was because unsolved mysteries didn't say they just yeah, said it yeah. was a member of a local prominent family. Well, I'm sure they were worried about libel or whatever that is. I think so. So on August twenty fourth, nineteen thirty nine, a Cleveland resident named Frank Dolezal, fifty two, was arrested as a suspect in Florence Polil. Polillo. Polillo's murder. <laughs> Sorry. Mm-hmm. He later died in suspicious circumstances in the Cuyahoga County Jail. Most investigators consider the last canonical murder to have been in 1938. One suspected individual was Dr. Francis E. Sweeney, who I kind of think is the one that Ness was looking at. Sweeney was a veteran of World War I who was part of a medical unit that conducted amputations in the field. Sweeney was later personally interviewed by Elliot Ness, who oversaw the official investigation into the killings in his capacity as Cleveland safety director. During this interrogation, Sweeney is said to have, quote, failed to pass two very early polygraph machine tests. Okay, that means nothing. Both tests were administered by the polygraph expert Leonard Keeler, who told Ness he had his man. Nevertheless, Ness apparently felt that there was little evidence obtaining a successful prosecution of the doctor, especially as he was the first cousin of one of Ness's political opponents. Uh, Congressman Martin L. Sweeney, who had hounded Ness publicly about his failure to catch the killer. After Sweeney committed himself, there was no more leads or connections that the police could assign to him as a possible suspect. From his hospital confinement, threatening postcards with Sweeney's name mocked and harassed Ness and his family into the 1950s. So they did come from him. Maybe maybe they didn't. I'm not sure. Unsolved Mysteries made that very unclear. And that might have been a legal thing. Sweeney died in a veterans hospital in Dayton in 1964. In 1997, another theory postulated that there may have been no single butcher of Kingsbury Run because the murders could have been committed by different people. This was based on the assumption that the autopsy results were inconclusive. Okay, that means there's that many people out there that want to be chopping off heads at the same time. I find this suspect. So first, Cuyahoga County Coroner Arthur J. 
Pierce may have been inconsistent in his analysis as to whether the cuts on the bodies were expert or slapdash. This is according to Wikipedia. Second, his successor, Sam, successor Samuel Gerber, who began to enjoy press attention from his involvement in such cases as the Sam Shepard murder trial, garnered a reputation for sensational theories. Therefore, the only thing known for certain was that the murder victims were dismembered. So it sounds like the autopsy results were possibly suspect, um, but these people were caught up. So <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. So Ness lost re-election by a landslide and left Cleveland never to return. However, he always maintained that the case was solved because I think he firmly believes that it was Sweeney. Um, if you're interested in knowing more about the Cleveland torso murders, thinking sideways, think, thinking sideways, and most notorious have um, episodes about it. Oh, cool. I thought this segment was really good. I thought yeah, the, it's very well edited. Yes, um, the pacing of it is good. It it just looked like good storytelling. I thought it really transported you into the 1930s. Like they had the old police cars. Everyone's wearing bowler hats. And yeah, then there's they, there's great hats. They do this. a really good like mix of like reenactments to cutting to experts to showing photos of the you know of all these people. At one point, there's like like a whole hillside full of people that are looking at this crime scene. It's a black and white. I just thought this was one of the better segments I've seen in Unsolved Mysteries. I think uh, this one was of personal interest to Robert Stack. I believe so. Maybe that meant I got a little special attention. Sure. Because he clearly was excited to talk about it and I I don't know. Why didn't they have Robert Stack play Elliot Ness in the reenactment? That's my that's my big question about this segment. I'm guessing because he's too old, Maybe, but, but it would have been fun. Yeah. yeah, who cares? It would have been so it fun. Been kind of distracting, I guess. Maybe. Anyway, I enjoyed that one. Yeah, it's well done. That's worth watching for sure. Okay, so our next one up is a final appeal. Gosh, this is a horrible one. It's like it's horrible, but it's fascinating. Fascinating, and I don't know. It's it's. It, Listen up. You're going to want to know. Okay, so this is taking place in St. Louis. This is the case of the death of Ryan Stallings, which was a suspicious death in St. Louis, Missouri, July 8th, 1989. Ryan Stallings was a three-month-old baby who had been ill since his birth. He suffered from chronic gastric distress. So one day, he's brought to the emergency room um, by his mother, Patricia, and his father, David, because he has labored breathing and he is vomiting uncontrollably. So he's placed in the pediatric intensive care unit, and it said that they rented a room at the hospital to be close to him, and I... What? Yeah, I don't even, like, understand exactly what that means, I've but... never heard that before. Our healthcare system is so fucked that I was sort of just like, okay, sure. Um, so they're there for three days. They're told that he will recover, but that he has been poisoned. And the way that Patricia phrases it is, like, they were polite but suspicious. Like, they come to the room that they've rented, and they're like, okay, the good news is that he's going to recover. The bad news is that we've found traces of two chemicals in his blood. So one was ethyl glycol, which is found in antifreeze, and one is acetone, which you're probably familiar from nail polish remover. Right. So these have both been found in his blood. So they suspected the parents of poisoning him. So they were never left alone with the child after that point. And when he recovers, a social worker comes to take custody of Ryan, which I suppose is necessary, but also like they haven't been charged with charged or convicted 
of anything. Right. What? Well, whatever. You'll you'll see why this is like. It gets more and more egregious as it goes, and it's sort of like just the suspicion of that. I suppose that is enough. I don't know. I don't know how all that works. I guess exactly. you maybe wouldn't want to risk sure, the life of, of the child, course. but it's also like there's no. It seemed like there was no due process in any form. They was just like, well, we're taking this baby. Yeah, there's nothing for them to do. So. Um, Patricia realizes that they're being suspected before this when they're questioned separately. Like, the police take her into a room and then are questioning her husband. And then she's like, oh, okay. They think we did this. Because they've been so concerned about their son, they haven't really stopped to go... Who may have poisoned him. Or the police are going to think it's us. Because they know it's not them. Right. Right. And they probably have more faith in the system than I do. (laughs) So they're not immediately going like, oh... They're going to think I did this. They're like, you know, what happened to our child? Blah, blah, blah. Like, and they're saying like, oh, do you have antifreeze in the home? And they're like, well, we have some in the basement. Like, do you have, you know, nail polish remover in the home? Like, yes. Like, is there a way the baby could have gotten it? And they're like, not that we can think of. Like, Right. A three-month-old baby isn't drinking nail polish remover. <laughs> right. Like, how is it getting into, like, cabinets and stuff? So, so fortunately, Ryan's condition improved. And he's released from the hospital, but he's put into foster care, and the his parents are only allowed to see him once a week. So Patricia talks about how she was, like, living for this one hour a week that she got to see her baby, and it was, like, all she could talk about, and... So sad. It's really, really sad, but it gets worse, because during one of these visits, Patricia is left alone with him for... It's a debated how much time. Her husband is, like... 45 seconds she's left alone with him the police are saying eight minutes okay yeah like there's a period of time of undetermined length where she's left in the room by herself with ryan three days later ryan gets sick again so at this point patricia is arrested because he is taken to the hospital and he is diagnosed again with ethanol like ethyl glycol poisoning so she is patricia is arrested she's charged with assault and at that time ryan's condition gets worse and he is put on life support so unfortunately this means that ryan dies in the hospital while his mother is is in in jail jail. and the father is not allowed to see him though the father is whole it has to make the decision of when he dies like can we take him off that came that part came later yeah like can we take him off life support so he has to hold his dying child for three hours while his wife is in jail and make that decision without her and make that decision without her because they won't let her leave the jail to come be with her child and she's also not allowed to attend his funeral her charges are then upgraded to first degree murder a few weeks later, Patricia discovers that she's pregnant again. I mean, she's still in prison. So their son, David Stallings Jr., who they refer to as J.D., is born February 27, 1990. So this is very confusing. Even though the father, David, is not a suspect, he has never been charged with anything. He is not allowed to take T.J. home did not understand so dj just become he becomes a ward of a state he's placed in foster care also although that kind of worked out in a way I yeah mean, it was a it was it ended up being fortunate 
even though it was horrible and should never have happened. Right. So when DJ is two weeks old, he begins to show symptoms almost identical to the ones Ryan has. He is taken to the St. Louis Children's Hospital, and his illness is diagnosed as a rare genetic disorder that I'm not going to say the full name of, but it's referred to as MMA. And what is so strange and interesting about this condition is that it causes the body to produce chemical byproducts that are very similar to ethyl glycol found in antifreeze the body is essentially poisoning itself it's wild and it's often misdiagnosed because it's so rare particularly i they were originally at i think a smaller hospital they've maybe never seen a case of this before right so yeah and the blood tests show up positive for this substance so it seems like poisoning when actually it's this rare genetic disorder so we hear from a doctor telling us like oh it's easy to be confused you know right well basically what we just said so due to the new medical evidence prosecutors are reevaluate the case however bizarrely because there isn't evidence that Ryan died from this disorder, they continue with the prosecution. Their theory somehow being that she poisoned her first baby with antifreeze, and then her second baby went on to have a rare genetic disorder (laughs) that his body basically produces antifreeze. That's their theory of the crime. This is, yes, our justice system is fucked up. so maddening. She's kept in jail for this trial. She's separated from her second child. Her first child is dead. She didn't get to see him before he passed. She didn't get to attend his funeral and now is on trial for his murder. Despite now knowing that no one poisoned him, it's this this thing MMA. And, I mean, her defense attorney messed up as well because he did not call an expert witness and so he was not allowed to present the evidence at her trial of the MMA evidence at all. Yes. So he didn't bring an expert to the judge which meant he wasn't allowed to present any of this evidence at the trial. It was excluded as being like irrelevant because it's her other son. And why? Why wouldn't you bring an expert? This is yeah so she can't fathom she got a shitty lawyer i mean well she yeah yeah so um yeah so the judge ruled that the mma diagnosis was inadmissible at court this is from unsolved mysteries wiki like everything like our whole lives (laughs) without the medical testimony the case against patricia seemed virtually airtight the prosecution focused on her and david's sixth supervised visit with ryan and that's the time that she was left alone with him for this brief window of time So the prosecutors were saying that she fed him a bottle that had ethyl glycol in it. Except the problem with that is that they tested the bottle and it didn't. Yeah. The other problem with that is that he didn't even get sick until like two or three days later. Right. And the doctor he's a tiny little baby. Yeah. The doctor they have on the show is like, if you gave that child enough ethyl glycol to kill him, he would not. It would not be three days until he showed symptoms. Right. But. It just seems like she had a terrible... Def- like, that should have been brought up in her defense, too. Right. And it doesn't seem like An it was. An expert witness might have brought that up. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, like... She didn't even prepare that bottle. The foster parents prepared that bottle. And David took it out of a bag. And they're saying that somehow she, like, got fucking antifreeze into it 
in the like 45 seconds her husband's not for some reason they're very sure there was only her i that i also didn't understand like they're they're very worried about this period of time where her husband's not in the room like what if they both did it or what if he didn't care or what are you like i don't understand why is he the supervisor of this visit Yes. He said, so this is what he said. He, his parents, or her parents, someone's parents I were think there it's with his them. Parents. And so he went to walk them out to their car, and she was alone with them for a few moments. Yeah. And then he says she didn't even, what they presented in court was that she gave the baby the bottle while he was gone. And he said that it's categorically not true because when he got back, the baby was fussing, and so he got the bottle out of the bag. Right. So the whole thing is just ridiculous. It's. I don't understand why they proceeded with this case, and it's very upsetting. So, um, they were claiming that traces of ethyl glycol were found in this one bottle. Also, this baby produces ethyl glycol. You don't think that's, like, his spit or something? I think they also mentioned that some of the laboratory tests were just bad. Yeah, dubious. Um... The prosecutor was claiming, okay, so the problem with him not getting sick for a few days is the prosecutor is claiming that the foster parents weren't the usual foster parents for some reason, and they might have not noticed that he was sick. Really? You might have not noticed he's, like, poisoned and violently vomiting and has This prosecutor was bending over backwards to try and justify why he pursued this case. So, on March 4th, 1991, Patricia is convicted of Ryan's murder and sentenced to life in prison. At this point... At the point that this segment aired, she'd only seen DJ three times since his birth. Two were, like, right after his birth, and one was, like, for an hour. And David was only allowed to see him once a week. So, the segment airs. She's maintaining this inno- her innocence. What is great about this segment is that it Unsolved Mysteries does a good deed, which I always appreciate, because I feel like it justifies uh, my love of television. I don't know. (laughs) It's like, when Unsolved Mysteries steps up to slightly unfuck the justice system, I really appreciate it. So this aired, obviously there was like public outcry. People were like, what the absolute fuck? It's clear this woman did not murder her baby with antifreeze and then just turn out to have this genetic... (laughs) disorder right like in her family line or however you phrase that yep so all of these doctors and experts called in to unsolved mysteries to offer help which is awesome yeah so this is now solved several okay unsolved mysteries wiki says several permissions familiar with mma called the telecenter in hopes of helping patricia and her appeal her prosecutor her attorneys petitioned the court for a new trial on july 30th 1991 she was granted a new trial and released from prison we see part of this press conference where the prosecutor like apologizes and like apologizes on the state of missouri and i just want to punch him in his face it's like you knew he knew absolutely he then the jury the reason the jury found her guilty was because they didn't have all this evidence yeah he had all the information and he's like saying like well if a jury of her peers found her guilty it's like it's because they don't know yeah he's (sighs) could punch him right in the face so um ryan's body was exhumed and uh independent serum tests confirmed that ryan definitely died of mma shocking yeah uh, of course it's tragic and it's horrible but it's so much worse to like put this poor family through it to have to deal with the death of your child and this on top of it unbelievable i couldn't believe so we get to see her at home they got custody of their son back and she's so 
happy and yeah. not the she's just happy that she's out of prison and has her son i would be burning the courthouse down yeah so um right so it ends with the the family like together and dj is gonna have some medical issues but they're like she's like at this point i feel like we can overcome anything like, yeah she is i've already remarkable. been wrongfully convicted of murder like <laughs> she's remarkable i'm tough as nails um, I did learn that she went on to sue the hospital and the labs that incorrectly oh, diagnosed Ryan. Her. So in 1993, they settled a lawsuit and they were awarded an undisclosed amount of money, but it was millions of dollars. Good for them. The Stallings later divorced. And unfortunately, DJ passed away in 2013 at the age of 23. Oh, from MMA? I, I don't know. Ugh. I don't know. Oh, that's awful. That's awful. I just, I appreciate that people saw this as the huge injustice that it was. I'll have you, also, after she's awarded all this money, um, Patricia donates to the, like, rival of that prosecutor's campaign, <laughs> and that that person wins. What? And that's this DA. So up. maybe she was a little bit more spiteful than I gave her credit for, and I respect it. I respect it so much. Because, yeah, that, that DA lost his re-election. Partly, partly thanks to Patricia. <laughs> well, also, I think people were like, why the fuck did you prosecute this case? Like, this yeah. is such a sympathetic, this mother who's lost her child, and you want to put her in prison? Like, yeah, I have no idea why he wouldn't let that go. It's so strange, but I'm glad that he was out of a job, and I'm glad that people came to Patricia's aid. I'm happy to. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an interesting case, and it does make me, it does leave this, like, lingering thought in my mind. What other people have gone to prison for poisoning mm-hmm. when it was really this? And Do you think that's possible? I sure, surely it must be. Well, and if she didn't, she had the privilege of having unsolved mysteries take up the case. Right. She was a white woman who right. appears very sympathetic to a lot of people. A mother who just lost her child. You know, there could be other people out there that aren't as fortunate, and that their case is never going to get a second look. Yeah. So it's it's that part. Well, it, the segment ends on this like happy note, but in the back of my mind, I'm going like, oh, like who else is what, who else is this happened to yeah and if it's striking babies too i mean it just seems like it just seemed i not an expert (laughs) not at all not a doctor but it just it seems like the complications from that mean your lifespan is shortened sure right so yeah it's gonna it's gonna affect infants and if it's Young not properly people. so ryan died because he was misdiagnosed and not properly treated dj lived a lot longer yep. because so i think that's actually part of why she sued the hospital it was not even because of the trial but because they had misdiagnosed her son and miss well and the other thing i read was that possibly some of the treatments they gave him thinking it was ethylene glycol poisoning contributed to his death Ugh. i don't know what those were but apparently yeah, you would treat it treating it could have also contributed so to him sad. so yeah that's really an awful case it was very interesting not like anything we've seen on unsolved mysteries before but no, and I th- and again i thought it was well produced uh-huh. yeah absolutely so what are you going to talk to us about okay now? this is an unexplained death all right in february 1980 prison director michael frankie was brought in to investigate several riots in a new mexico prison that left 33 inmates dead he was successful with reforms in new mexico in 1987, the Oregon 
Oregon, Oregon's governor asked him to take over the state's troubled prison system. However, he was found stabbed to death just outside his office door on January 17, 1989. Before his death, he had told several family members that he was doing a top-secret investigation into drug trafficking and other corruption at the Oregon prison system. He planned to name several high-level officials. Although police investigators believe he was killed in a robbery gone wrong, his family is convinced that he was silenced because of information uncovered during his investigations. Hmm. Seems kind of possible. A former prison guard claimed that other guards had brought drugs, weapons, and other illegal items into the prison for prisoners. In their lunch pails. Yeah, apparently they're lunchboxes weren't searched as they came in each day so this prison guard so claims, they would have a sandwich and just a kilo of heroin yeah the, they would dro- smuggle drugs into the prison michael interviewed this guard and several others gathered, gathering evidence of corruption within Oregon's prison system by the end of 1988, he appeared to find even more incriminating evidence against certain prison officials. On January 13th, 1989, he told his sister-in-law that he was planning to go before the legislature and, quote, clean house. The next week, he said that he was concerned about what he had uncovered. Four days later, he was found dead. That is a suspicious timeline. Sure is. Police tried to piece together the last hours of his life. At 6.50 p.m. on January 16th, after the regular Tuesday staff meeting, he spoke to one of his employees. 30 minutes later, two other corrections employees noticed that the lights in his car were on and the driver's door was open. The two and one of his coworkers is wandering around in like a full fur coat. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Look, stylish. How you go to work? Cool. The two employees could not find him, nor could they reach him on his pager, which he always carried with him. They called their superiors at 8.30 p.m. Two officials searched the building. However, he was nowhere to be found. The two men left around 9.30. The thing is, is that he didn't keep a normal schedule except for these Tuesday staff meetings. So it seems like whoever killed him probably knew where he was going to be that night, which is also suspicious. So at 12.45 a.m., a security guard found Michael's body on the side of the porch on the side porch of the building a pane of glass on the side door was shattered and his briefcase was missing and it's also the like pain the pane of glass that would like lead to his office right investigators believed that he was murdered by someone that was trying to rob him they interrogated several drug dealers and street criminals one of them claimed that he witnessed the murder and identified the killer as drug, drug dealer frank gable Gable was Uh arrested and charged with Michael's murder. Police determined that Gable stabbed him while trying to break into his car. However, many people, including Michael's family, are convinced that someone else was responsible. A lot of people think Gable is a fall guy. Uh, I can see why. Yeah, I can kind of understand his family's suspicions. So his family has found some discrepancies in the police's official version of events surrounding Michael's murder. Michael had a car alarm system that would have gone off if Gable's was breaking into his car. Also, there appeared to be no signs of forced entry in the car. Furthermore, if Michael had been stabbed at the car, there should have been blood around it. However, there was no trace of blood for more than 100 feet from the car. Yeah. Finally, it seemed unlikely that he was murdered at 7 p.m. if his body was not found during the search of the building at 8.30 p.m. I'm not sure about that one, actually. Yeah, I don't know. Would you really... If you're searching a building, would you look in this, like, weird side porch over, like, outside? Yeah, I'm, I'm not I sure. And also, I would. they became suspicious when they found his car, and that was in a totally different location. So, right. possibly, yeah. 
his family and several others believe that Michael was killed during a premeditated murder committed by several men, possibly the high-ranking officials that were to be named in his investigation. One eyewitness seems to have seems to corroborate the theory. At 10:15 on the night of the murder, he saw either five or six men running from the crime scene to a Volkswagen van. His family theorizes that these men abducted him as he opened his car. According to the theory, they took him to an unknown location and then returned him to his office so that they could get incriminating documents from him. He then tried to escape his abductors, but was stabbed and killed on the porch. This is an elaborate theory that I'm not so sure about. I think he could just have easily been just simply killed by his office. Or maybe they did abduct him, sort of, like at his car and made him go to his office. Or he was him trying there. to get away, and it could be a lot more simple than what his family is putting forth. But I kind of understand, based on their suspicions, why they may come up with something elaborate like this. I mean, I think the fact that they're saying, "Oh, he was breaking into his car," but his car is not broken into. I think he could have been getting into his car, and therefore That's the true. car door was open. Like it could be right. that simple. Right. You know, just because the car alarm wasn't going off doesn't mean he was leaving this meeting. He could have opened his door, and then they. jumped him yeah that's a good point so interestingly several witnesses reported seeing an unidentified man wearing a pinstripe suit at michael's office building on the night of the murder one final act that seemed to support the cover-up theory was that no paperwork involving michael's prison investigation was ever found huh considering how hard he was working on that this seems like the most damning evidence to me i would agree there should be something he should have a notebook right he wasn't keeping all that in his head this is yeah. before computers. You know what I mean? Like, he should have some There's papers paper lying trail. around. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and several witnesses recalled seeing around 23 bags of shredded papers being removed <laughs> from his office after his death. Oh, my God. So that seems either suspicious. It's either someone taking advantage of his death that happens because could, of could a robbery. Be. Or, or, yeah, it's very suspicious. So... Drug dealer Frank Gable is considered the prime suspect in the case. A witness came forward claiming that he had seen Gable breaking into Michael's car on the night of the murder. Um, The fact that they were just like, go talk to some drug dealers. Like, what? What does that have to do with any... Like, go talk to some known criminal. It's such a, like, round up the usual suspects moment. It seems... It just seems a little too convenient. Yeah, it's... So, you know, mm, like, you said, it, like you said, it could have been a robbery gone wrong and then someone took advantage of his death to cover up his investigation. I don't actually think that, but it's it's possible. possible. Yeah. Uh, it could also be a cover up. So, so this case is technically solved, but... Is it? So Frank Gable was convicted of Michael's murder and sentenced to life in prison. However, he maintains his innocence and the case is currently under federal appeal. Some of Gable's supporters claim that police coerced witnesses into testifying against him. They also claim that the police hid evidence that might exonerate him. Several of Michael's friends and family members believe that Michael's killer or killers are still at large. However, others believe that there was no conspiracy in the case and that most of the evidence of conspiracy was either fabricated or misrepresented. Investigators by the governor of Oregon and independent journalists at the Oregonian concluded that there was no conspiracy and that Michael was most likely killed by Gable. It, there is parts of this case that seem suspicious, but also they're claiming that they may have been misrepresented by people who had... A stake in wanting to believe that there was a cover-up. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. The shredded paper thing makes me raise my eyebrows. That's the thing that I think 
you would need to look into more. Like, how credible is that witness? Also, it seems like his investigation was almost done. Why is it that no one... He didn't report to anyone? He didn't, like... He was a week away from presenting his findings to to the Oregon Senate. Yeah. So why is it that his investigation suddenly... No one else picked that up and was like, hey, let's find all this work that he did and maybe right. do something with it. Like, clearly he had like, drawn well, There's nothing we can do. He's dead. Uh, obviously, there's not a problem. Let's move on. That's like, he was brought in for a reason. Yeah. Someone... So, so either someone had him killed or someone took advantage of the fact that he died to just sweep some stuff under the rug. For sure. Right. Because otherwise... Because why? Did why wasn't this not continued? Yeah, I don't get why it. didn't they look harder for his notes and find it? If he was a week away from presenting to the Senate, it's not like there's nothing. Yeah, to to go off of. That's the part I find so frustrating. I can see why his family is very suspicious. I would be very suspicious as well. Yep. Okay, so you might think. These were three kind of longer segments. The first one was like a special edition segment, too, which usually takes up like a whole episode. So you might think we were done. I certainly thought we were done. And then I remembered that on the image, the description of this episode, one of the mysteries was called Autistic Son. And when I saw that, I went, boy. Yeah. It's not going to be good. Liz got this one. So I'm going to say if you or a loved one are on the autism spectrum, you are not going to watch this. Just turn it off i recommend against it it. is problematic and just depressing and there's really no value to it whatsoever not really there there isn't a value in watching it this far from when it aired it's a missing person segment it's only a couple minutes long i would just stop the episode after my mystery (laughs) to be honest no there's really no reason for anyone to watch this uh i'm kind of mad they even included it yeah i don't know why this needed to be brought back when they edited these segments together for Amazon we could have left this one off I guess it would have been a perfectly satisfying episode I guess it's because he's still missing but I guess I guess I I don't really blame unsolved mysteries for this segment maybe that's my own naivete I feel like it reflects society at a different time and we've just learned so much about autism since. I know. The fact that Robert Stack has to define autism for us I think tells us where we were back then as far as understanding. Right. So you know as a product of its time it's just hard to watch it today knowing what we know now. It's very cringeworthy. Yeah. And I really don't want to talk about it. There's also even okay so this is the case of Oded Gordon he went missing in Greenfield, New Hampshire, on May 12, 1989. Part of what's hard to watch about this is that even his mother is kind of like blaming him for not being willing to grow up. Yeah. It's a weird way to describe him. I think it just shows like a fundamental misunderstanding, misunderstanding of autism and that's probably not even her fault. That's probably things doctors told her. And Right. She really did seem to love her son. So, you know, I don't think there's any malicious intent behind it, but it's, like you said, hard to watch. It, it's really... Blah, 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 blah. So we learned that when Oded was eight years old, he was diagnosed with a minor learning disability. At the age of 12, he began to withdraw from his friends. By the time he was 18, he was totally withdrawn and afraid to communicate with anyone. And it was... At this point, pretty much nonverbal. It, it's in that year that he's diagnosed with autism. So 
I think his his mother did really love him and care about him and tried to get the best care for him. So he is enrolled in a facility in Greenfield, New Hampshire, which is sort of a group home for, I'm not even entirely sure, but other people who had autism and other, I don't know. This is a group home. They they kind of describe it as a work camp like it's i know yeah i really feel like they were doing animal therapy in a way but the way it's described is like they worked on this farm it was like free labor or something yeah that's why i'm like tripping over my words i'm not really sure what this facility they called the the woman they interview who runs the place was called a teacher so or a special needs teacher possibly in her title card so it made it seem like this was legit but also it kind of seemed like it made me feel a little uneasy. Uh, I haven't looked into this place more. Maybe I should it, have. Maybe it's not around anymore. I don't know. So, within six weeks of ar- arriving at the farm... Oh, what we, okay. What we hear is that at first he adjusted well. He was actually starting to speak to one of the teachers there. They were developing sort of a communication, friendly relationship, whatever. But within six weeks of arriving at the farm, he's working outside with several of the other residents and just wanders away. And no one notices for like an hour. I thought it was longer than that. Maybe it was an hour. I don't know. Well, so... It's just sad. Okay, that's basically it. They're trying to find him. They bring in search dogs to find him, which I, you know, I'm I'm glad that they look for him. But the dogs get to the highway and the scent stops. And so they think that he hitched a ride. And that's it, I don't know about that. It's winter. Yeah. It's winter and it looks like a pretty remote area. I, there's several sightings of him over the years, but there's always the sightings of knows? people. I know. At one point, his mother goes to Boston because there's been a bunch of sightings of him, but he's never found. And why did we need to even have this mystery? I don't. It's. I. It would have been great if until they had aired this on Unsolved Mysteries and it had helped him get back to his family and his mother's on the show saying like look we don't even need to know where you are but if you're able if you could just call me or your grandparents or someone and let us know that you're okay and it just rips out your heart and stomps on it but then it's also just problematic and i don't i know i kind of just want to cry and i know because the reality is is he's probably not alive and it's horrible (sighs) yeah and I yeah, there's, there's so I many reasons it. to be upset by this segment that it's like... Ugh. I wish I could have just not talked about it at yeah. all. Yeah, well, unfortunately. If you have any thoughts about first-person language in regards to the autism spectrum, such as the ver- saying an autistic person versus a person with autism, I was looking into this last night. There just does not seem to be a consensus about it. So if that's something that you would like to weigh in on, I'm I'm happy to read your thoughts. That's perhaps it's you podcast at gmail.com. We try to do our best here with stuff like that, but we really do. It's just But it's, also do we know anything? No. No. We're fumbling in the dark sometimes. So all it's doubly challenging because the way Unsolved Mysteries presents these cases are obviously problematic. So it's hard to take that in and then find a way to speak about it that is appropriate. And also, yeah, it's not it's not my story to tell, so that seems kind of strange. Like, right. I think that Unsolved Mysteries wanted Oded found. 
Um, well, of course. Yep. But I think that, I don't know, we've, we've just done better as a society since then, so. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, let's That's... rate episode 19 of season three. Okay. Mysteriousness. Uh, actually, pretty mysterious, right? Because the we, first who was that torso a, killer? Never found. Might to this, be this day, rich dude, it's a mystery. Might be this rich dude with a penchant for sending postcards, but we're not sure. Right. But that also could just be someone who was ill. Was just a troll. And yeah, trolling. Just an old an old-fashioned snail mail troll that was like, hey, Elliot Ness, never solved that case, ha ha. Right, and there's this this added, it is sort of a legend, you know, this legendary figure investigated the murder, so I thought that was interesting and mysterious. Yeah. I would say, yeah, thumbs up for mysterious, though. Thumbs up. Fashion. Kind of unremarkable, actually. Oh, boy, there is some wild purple eyeshadow in one of these. I don't remember who that was. No, no, no. That was a family member from your corruption case. Was it? Yes. Also, how can I say unremarkable when we see so many fedoras in the first segment? Oh, yeah. The 1930s era fashion was on point. It's very Dick Tracy, and yeah. I, that's great. So, never mind. Forget what I said. I'm going to give it a thumbs up for yeah, fashion as absolutely. well. Yeah, uh, Reenactments. Good excellent i thought they were yeah. super good um the first two segments are just done really well very well reenacted and the um, actors they got were superb yeah everyone did so good it was really good yeah uh we'll just ignore the last segment yeah but... i prefer to never remember that again so <laughs> but i'm gonna give it a thumbs up yeah yeah and then robert stack uh, he was very so pleased happy. to oh be talking God. about... So, what a smug bastard. Elliot Ness. Yeah. Oh. So, I, I'll give him a thumbs up for that, because yeah, it's, like, he's cheeky. Good. Okay, so we can give this episode a possible five Robert Stacks. This problem is that this last thing just leaves it, such a bad taste in my mouth. It brings it down, for sure. And I really enjoyed all three of the other ones. The first one is an excellent true crime story. That's true. But it was well done. But it is hard to get past that you problematic... To, you didn't have to talk about this Oded thing. Even though the segment is like two minutes long. I think so part short. of it for me, too, is that I didn't have to talk about that one. So I didn't have to take notes. I kind of watched it half-heartedly and then quickly turned the episode you off. You were like, let's just ignore that. So, um, I think I'm going to say a three, but I would understand if you said higher. I don't know that I'm up to a four, but I could be a three and a half. Okay. Because I enjoyed That the, seems good. I enjoyed the other one so much. It's... Yeah, I just wish they had left that out. I know. It would be Why? a solid it would be a solid Why? four if they had left that one out. Yeah, agreed. Okay, that wraps up episode nineteen. Let's throw that away. <laughs> what is your recommendation this week? Okay, I have a product recommendation. Uh that is for anyone that has trouble with chronic pain. Okay. But maybe not even maybe you just like work out a lot and you need a little extra something something sure maybe you slipped on the ice last weekend <laughs> yes i did I, <laughs> I completely wiped out yeah the day that everything was going wrong it was raining but everything was still ice so there's a layer of water on top of inches of the thickest slickest ice and so i 
was running an errand and wa- trying so delicately to like tiptoe back to my car and just completely wiped out in a gigantic puddle Ooh, it was soaking course. wet and blah 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 it has nothing to do with anything i just wanted to complain i literally did one of those cartoon falls on the ice where your feet go up yes, and your yes, the rest of your body goes down but into a puddle oh, so then yeah. i'm stand up i'm soaking wet oh my god <laughs> It's the worst day ever. But, yeah, so maybe you fell on the ice. Maybe you're a little sore. Maybe you could use a little, I don't know, help. Couldn't we all? Yeah. I'm going to recommend this product called Muscle Mist. Why is it called that? Well, I'll have you know, it used to be called Miracle Mist. Okay. But uh, that's like fraud. You can't (laughs) claim that something is a miracle. Yeah. So now it just says, experience your miracle on it. Uh Uh, Does this look like the most (laughs) bootleggy product? I'm holding it up for Samantha. It really does. So this is sort of like an all-natural icy hot. Okay. If that makes sense. It's a spray. It... You have to, it's made by this, I think it's this little family company called Aroma Sensations. Their website looks like it's from 1998. <laughs> uh, this packaging looks like it's from 1998. It just has this purple label that says muscle mist. Muscle mist makes me so uncomfortable. Temporary relief of muscle aches and joint pains associated with sprains and bruises. Uh... I don't... This stuff feels great. Okay. So if you have any pain issues, is this going to solve anything? No. Temporary relief, though, Temporary is relief. Important. Uh, this bottle costs like $10. Don't love that. That's this is two ounces. Kind of expensive. But if it works, man... You know, it feels pretty darn good. I... Does it have a scent? Here, you can use some. Okay. I was also going to say, like, yeah, it's $10. That seems like a lot. Here we see the medicinal ingredients are menthol and clove oil. And that's with ethanol, water, eucalyptus oil, camphor, peppermint oil, and Jehovah oil. Uh, maybe just make it yourself. I don't know. <laughs> so, here. There's a tiny bit in there you can I'm spray I'm going to spray it on want. my hand and rub it on my shoulder because I'm wearing long sleeves. Oh, it smells... It smells menthol-y. Yeah. It smells kind of like bug spray. Yeah. Ooh, I can feel it already. It's very it kind of like icy hot. Yeah. But I really dislike icy hot. And you find that this is okay on your sensitive skin? Yes. Because that's the reason I can't use icy hot. It's because it burns me. Have you ever tried Tiger Balm? No. So, if you want a more cost-effective thing that you also don't have to order from some weird website. So, I've ordered from it several times and it's been fine. But Tiger Balm... It's based on traditional Chinese medicine, but you can get it in, like, Walgreens. And it just comes in, like, a little tiny jar with a gold lid. Okay. Um, and it's just a, yeah, like, menthol or camphor-based balm. And it's, but it's very tingly. Ooh, I like that. I like the tingle. Okay. You have to, like, a little, the reason it's so small is oh. because a little goes a long way. Sure. And I want, the, I think the first time I used it, I, like slathered it like all over my leg and then it was like oh my leg is on fire (laughs) like i made this so much worse so you only want to use a little bit i do i would recommend that as well okay maybe i'll check out some tiger balm it also in the packaging tells you not made with real tiger so (laughs) good i was worried about that don't worry about that also what you do not want to do is this horror story i saw on the internet which is apply some tiger balm don't wash your hands and then change a tampon Oh, I thought you were going to say wipe your butt, but that's just as bad. Uh, so don't uh, do that. Uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. That stuff feels really good. Isn't it nice? I'm enjoying it. And are I you one of the people that likes the smell of menthol? I'm fine with it. I'm fine know. with it, too. My husband loves the smell of menthol. I don't know that I, like, seek it out, but I definitely don't dislike it. I used to um, keep this at my desk at work. And then if I... Because I was having a lot of issues where I'd wake up and my neck would be like, you like, you know. Oh, sure. So then I would just kind of spray that on there and, you know, be able to get through the day. So kind of the idea. So that's from Aroma Sensations. Muscle mist. Nice. Thanks for that recommendation. You know, I've, I kind of need to order more, but I also kind of don't want to. It's a little pricey, but... Yeah, but it is nice. I don't know. Uh, and if you're a person like I am that can't use Icy Hot because it irritates your skin, yeah, it's a good it a, option. Give it a try. All right, my recommendation this week combines two of my favorite things, <gasps> which is true crime stories and food. Okay. I was saying. not expecting this show, it's a Netflix show that I'm recommending, to be what it is, but I was pleasantly surprised. It is the Netflix original series Rotten. Okay. If you have been on Netflix in recent weeks, you've probably seen it. They have the, like, big title cards with all of their sure. original shows, and yeah. it's one of them. Where they just start playing those little previews, and you it's so hard to browse now. It's very difficult. I hate it. Yeah, Netflix, are you listening in any way? Please. Can Auto I just, play. Turn it off. Can I just look around and see what things are? <laughs> I hate it. It's too much sensory overload. It's a little much. So... So basically, it is, it's a very short series. I think there's maybe like six or eight episodes. And it details, there's different topics for each episode. And it goes through, so the three I've, I've watched so far is the one about honey, okay. which I thought you might be interested yeah, in. Yeah, it would be. The one about allergies and the one about raw milk. Oh. I kind of skipped around to episodes that I thought would interest me. What I like is that there's like a true crime story. Interest. Or a crime. There's a food, they call it, or a food fraud in some of these. It's food fraud. Sure. In each episode. But then it also talks about, they're pretty long. They're, I think, over an hour, at least an hour. And they talk about other issues around that product or that issue. So in Honey, for instance, they talked about um, bootleg honey or people that are basically juicing honey with artificial sweeteners sweeteners and and syrups because. What I found fascinating and totally makes sense is that the global supply of honey is going down as bee populations are diminishing, but the demand for honey is going up and the demand is satisfied every year. And sometimes there's excess honey, which does not track because we should have less honey. And basically that means that suppliers around the world are supplementing their honey with syrups that aren't honey. And they talk about this issue. Uh, it's a food fraud. They talk about a big case where they took down this company that was doing this. Um, they talk about the technology that's being developed to identify impure honey and like using genetics because basically companies can find ways to thwart it all the time. And so we're, they're constantly mm. trying to stay ahead of companies that are fraud making fraudulent yeah, yeah. honey. Be- they interview local, like, you know, small time beekeepers that are trying to keep up with big honey and how they're finding new ways to market their bees. It was very fascinating. I know you like bees. Um, I think that would be an episode you would enjoy. I found the other two episodes to be really good, too. The allergy one was fascinating. They talk about a case where a small restaurant chain was not being diligent in their allergens and actually ended up killing someone and sickening someone else. And um, they talk about that case, but then they also interview restaurateurs that are ahead of the game as far as 
being allergy friendly in their restaurants. They interv- they talk about why allergies are on the rise and how we could possibly things that you could do to possibly interesting. There's no cure for like childhood allergies or these sort of acquired food allergies, but they are doing things to try and treat them. And it seems like some things are promising. They interview like a peanut farmer. The raw milk one was wild. Yeah, I imagine. This phenomenon where people think that drinking raw milk will like cure you of your allergies or like cure your eczema. I don't know if there's any anecdotal evidence. There must be to suggest that. There's certainly no scientific evidence that they present in the show, at least. Um, Basically, they start in that episode talking about dairy farmers and how hard it has become to Mm -hmm. be a dairy farmer and to actually keep up with factory farms. If you're just a family dairy farm in Wisconsin, you can't can't compete just because of how um, the market has changed to favor factory farms. So, where it used to be very easy to make a, a good living as a dairy farmer, as a family farm, they interview these different farmers. Basically, you can go organic and you'll get more money for your milk. Or, more lucrative, you could sell raw milk, which you mm-hmm. can get a ton of money for, and there's apparently a skyrocketing demand for. Sure. But raw milk can kill people. And it talks about, um, they interview a family who gave... In California, I think it's legal to sell raw milk. So there's a huge factory, basically, milk farm that sells raw milk. And you can just go to the grocery store and buy it. And there was like 16 different cases of this company's raw milk poisoning, giving people E. coli. And they interviewed this family whose son had this horrible experience where he was in a coma. Oh, my God. From raw milk. It's an extremely interesting show. I've only watched three episodes, but I'll probably dive in and watch the others. Yeah. I like that they... It's not just the true crime story. I feel like there wouldn't be enough there. But they also talk about all these other things, and you learn a lot. I didn't know people were out there drinking unpasteurized milk. That's frightening. Yeah. I I know that to get around certain states you can't buy raw milk right yes so like lots of people will go in on buying a cow or like renting a cow so that they have access to that milk don't like countries in europe not pasteurized milk isn't that why cheese is better i have no idea maybe it's just my ignorant thought Yikes. Yeah. So oh, that sounds very interesting. I'll check that out for sure. I thought it was extremely interesting. Like I said, I wasn't really expecting it to be that when I opened up the right. the Netflix show. I was kind of like, well, I wonder what this is. And it turned out to be fascinating. Hmm. Very well. I highly recommend. Okay. Are we done? I think so. Can we move on? We should plug our shit. <laughs> Can we eat more cinnamon rolls? Oh, we're going to talk about chicken people next. Oh, yeah. Give us some money on Patreon, and this month you'll get to hear us talk about the documentary Chicken People. That makes sense, because we're an Unsolved Mysteries podcast. Liz is going to cluck the whole time. Probably. Probably. <laughs> so give us your dollar. Patreon.com slash Perhaps Is You. You can also follow us on the social medias at yeah. Perhaps Is You. Facebook. Twitter. Twitter. Instagram. We have a Facebook group. Yeah. You should join it. That's a lot of fun. Uh, we'll interact with you, maybe possibly you can meet other people that like listening to the sounds of our voices and all of the other sounds like me hitting this table which yeah. i've done 14 times in this episode it's a very musical table yeah um what, what else, else? What, um, else? what else send us your paranormal tale oh yes and please. we might read it on the show we will read it on the show that's perhaps it's you podcast at gmail.com or we have a form on our website 
perhaps it's you.com. We gotta be almost done with this season, right? Yeah, I think so. We're on gonna be it's episode twenty next. Whoa. Our season finale is listener stories, and Whoa. we've gotten quite a few of them, so it's gonna be fun. I, so far, our listener story episodes have been so good, and I love them. Yeah. Because they're really the like, scariest stories I've ever heard. I know. I don't know. I don't. All of our listeners have had some real freaky stuff happen to them. What's up with New Michelle? Oh, gosh. What's New Michelle? No! <laughs> no, New Michelle! Okay, that's everything. You should go solve a mystery, bitch. Bye! Bye!